Imagine workplace law as a building. Employment standards are the ground floor, the basic level of working conditions that are legal. On the ground floor, workers are paid for their training, get time and a half for overtime. No one is subject to lie detector tests. Yeah, seriously, this is forbidden in the Employment Standards Act. And of course, everyone makes the minimum wage. If the ground floor is the absolute minimum standard, then there shouldn't be any workers in the basement. That would be illegal. And yet, despite these laws, there are thousands of workers toiling below the surface. And for the most part, the legal system is failing them. It expects these workers to find their own way out of the dark. Welcome to Objection, a podcast miniseries where we explore injustices big and small and the ways that the law can be used to address them. I'm Kelly Doctor. And I'm Nadine Bloom. We're lawyers with Goldblatt Partners in Toronto. In our first episode of this four-part series, we're exploring the issue of unpaid work and the factors that keep employees from enforcing their rights. This is an area where the law is pretty clear. If you hire someone to work for you, you have to pay them minimum wage. And yet, every year, thousands of businesses are breaking the law and getting away with it. We wanted to know why. This issue became very real to me when it happened to my friend Sheila. Sheila grew up in the Philippines, where she graduated from nursing school and decided to head abroad to work as a live-in caregiver. Like thousands of other women from the Philippines, the live-in caregiver program provided the best option for her to work in Canada. But Sheila always hoped to find her way back to her true passion, healthcare. She sent out a ton of resumes and even went back to school part-time and qualified as a personal support worker, but she couldn't catch a break. Then, an opportunity came up at a high-end medical clinic. They were looking for a receptionist, but they wanted to try out first their candidates, I think, if the candidate would fit into their clinic before offering them the job. What do you mean by try out the candidate? It's a fast-paced clinic, so I think they need someone who's skilled enough, who knows whatever is going on and can easily catch up. I don't know, maybe they're looking for the chemistry and the good skills. And what was your understanding about whether there would be a job at the end of it? I know that they're looking for someone who can fill the position. Uh, I was hoping it would be me. So how did it work? Were you paid for your time in the clinic? No. We asked Sheila why she agreed to this unpaid tryout. Generally, it is hard for a living caregiver to change jobs. Because as a live-in caregiver, you only take care of kids and family and you get stuck because you're worried that you cannot do something else. I know it was free. I think it's a good chance for us to get exposed. This so-called tryout lasted four to five shifts, and then the clinic decided not to give her the job. During her shifts, Sheila was doing the same work that paid staff would have otherwise done, answering phones, filing Typical office work. But here's the thing. There is no such thing as an unpaid tryout recognized by the law. If someone is coming into work for you, even if they're still learning how to do the job, they have to be paid the minimum wage. If they'd paid Sheila minimum wage, which was about $11.40 an hour at the time, she would have made about $570. For Sheila, that was close to a month's rent. Sheila's situation made us wonder, how often do businesses get people to work for free? 
We did an informal survey of our coworkers and friends to see if anyone else had a story about unpaid work. My friend, while she was completing her college program after university, tried to get a part-time job at a restaurant in Toronto. And at the end of her training shift, and training in quotations, they said, thank you very much. We don't pay for training. Told her that's against the law, but she just didn't want to go back or have the time to enforce her rights. When I was doing my undergraduate studies, and uh, basically it was an institute that does polling, and they wanted to determine whether or not they wanted to hire me on full-time. So essentially I did an unpaid internship for a couple of months before they decided that they really liked my work. So was it basically an unpaid probationary period? Essentially. Wow, so how much money do you think you lost? Well, based on what I was making after that, I probably lost out on maybe six or seven hundred dollars. So when you think about it, that could have been like one whole law school textbook. <laughs> I've done unpaid modeling. When you're first starting out, they justify it by saying, you know, this will go in your book. You'll get some prints for your portfolio. And a lot of the time it was like me working 10 hours and not getting any pay. And sometimes food, sometimes not. My mother is in the food industry and uh, she worked for a catering service most of her life and uh, would work crazy hours, a lot of overtime. Uh, that was unpaid, the overtime. And at some point, it got so bad that her employer got fined for making her work too much without being paid. Of course, the fine was paid to the government. My mom's situation remained the exact same, and she didn't see a penny of that penalty. So I spent one summer working on uh, fruit farms you get paid based on how much fruit you can pick. And you know the old adage about if Peter Pepper could pick a peck of pickled peppers, how many? Well, in any case, the point is you can't do it very fast, especially if you're inexperienced. And that means that you can spend very long hours in very difficult working conditions doing gainful work, but not being remunerated at anything close to what would pass for a minimum wage. We were surprised to hear that even among this privileged crowd, there were lots of stories of people who made less than the minimum wage in all kinds of industries. We spoke to Josh Mandrick, an associate at our firm, about Sheila's story and what we had heard from our colleagues. Josh has a lot of experience advocating against unfair, unpaid work. He's the co-founder and Ontario director of the Canadian Intern Association. As a lawyer, he's helping employees recover their wages through class actions. Here's his take on Sheila's story. Unfortunately, it's a, a bit of a common story nowadays. You find an increased number of sort of volunteer receptionist positions, which are often pitched to folks as sort of a, a gateway into the job market, a good way to get experience. In many cases, these are pitched towards new Canadians as getting Canadian experience. Um, I think it's very problematic, and I think that it also runs in violation of the law. There are two main ways the Ministry of Labour finds out about violations of employment standards laws. Employees can come forward and file a complaint themselves. But from time to time, the ministry does a proactive inspection, or blitz, where they examine a bunch of workplaces to see if they are obeying the law. When they do these blitzes, they find that almost 75% of workplaces that they look at have violated the Employment Standards Act in one way or another. 
And yet workers aren't coming forward at these same rates to complain. My friend Sheila was one such worker who didn't want to file a complaint. I feel bad, of course, but, but what can we do? We don't have that opportunity that you have here, so we have to work for it. Sometimes if it's for free, but it's okay. We look at it as a stepping stone to get what we want. It makes me really sad. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. You make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing you sad makes me angry. <laughs> Because it's not right, you know, like these laws are there to protect people and just seemed from your experience that you know that, but it doesn't matter because you have to look at the bigger picture and you have to be practical, right? Exactly. And so, but it's a, it's a reality. Yeah. We have to live with it. We have to work for it. And so I've told you, you would have the right potentially to go back and file with the, la- the Ministry of Labor a complaint asking for wages for that period and you'd probably win. Would you do it? No. Why? I guess the question is why not? Well, that's a good question, but I don't know. There's no point of doing so. I mean, I guess you get a couple hundred dollars. I can let it go. On my end, it was a volunteer work. Right, that's how you thought of it, so it doesn't feel like an injustice to you. And at first, I know what I'm getting myself into, so I don't mind. Would you do it again? Like, if you needed another chance to get an opportunity either in that field... And it happened again, and somebody said, okay, well, if you work for free for me for a couple of weeks, then I'll consider hiring you. Would you, would you do it again? I think I, I would still. Before speaking with Sheila, I think we both naively thought that if workers knew what they were being asked to do was illegal, they wouldn't stand for it. There may be some myth that, you know, people who are being exploited are being exploited because they don't know what their rights are. No, workers know what their rights are. You don't need to tell them, hey, you're not being paid properly. They know they're not being paid properly. This is John No, staff lawyer in the Workers' Rights Division at the Parkdale Legal Clinic in Toronto. Employment standards violations become so normalized in that a lot of workers, like the, the worker you're talking about, will say, well, you know, it's not that bad. Or, you know, a restaurant worker may say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm getting less than the minimum wage. I'm not getting overtime, but that's all it is in all restaurants. And what they'll tell me is, yeah, I know I should be getting overtime pay. I know I should be getting minimum wage, but at least I get paid something and I have to pay the rent. I have to pay the groceries. I have to feed my kids. And it's unfortunate when something is better than nothing becomes the, the standard that we expect. One of the major problems with our employment standards system is that it's complaints-driven, meaning that it relies on employees to rat on their boss. Not surprisingly, this is a serious barrier for many people. I mean, would you want to file a complaint against your boss? If you don't have the protections of a union, your employer has control over when you're scheduled to work, what you do, and can fire you. It's no surprise that a system set up this way leads to lots of employers not following the law, because they can get away with it. Bill 148 which made extensive changes to Ontario's labor and employment laws, was passed last November. It contains important measures that address some of the barriers preventing people from pursuing their rights. For example, Bill 148 eliminated the so-called self-help requirement. Under the old system, you generally had to go to your employer to ask to be paid before you filed a complaint with the Ministry of Labor. That requirement is now gone. Also, the Ministry of Labor is now allowing anonymous complaints to be filed which may be very helpful in larger workplaces, but in workplaces with just a handful of staff, like Sheila's, the employer is likely going to know who complained. 
So while these are good steps, they don't eliminate the problem for many employees who are going to be scared to file a complaint against their boss. I think we have to uh, acknowledge that it will never be easy for an employee to come forward, no matter how much we try to make it easy. And of course, we can make it easier, but there will always be people who will be too afraid or too apprehensive. What we need to do is to not rely on employees driving the process by filing a claim, but have the Minister of Labor do more proactive inspections or investigations so that they catch violations without having to rely on employees letting the uh, Minister of Labor know. When Bill 148 was passed, the government also announced a number of measures to improve the enforcement of the Employment Standards Act. Here's Josh again. One of those is uh, hiring a significant number of new employment standards officers, to be specific, 175 new ones by 2021. Also a very ambitious target of inspecting one in 10 workplaces in Ontario annually. Accompanying these measures was an initiative to educate smaller businesses about the law. The goal of all of this was to create what experts call a culture of compliance, where knowledge of rights and responsibilities under the Employment Standards Act is widespread, where employers comply with their responsibilities, and where employees feel comfortable asserting their rights at work. But the goal of creating a culture of compliance is now under threat due to the election of new Ontario Premier Doug Ford. He has put the hiring of these new inspectors on hold, and we fear that they'll never be hired. I have an update in Sheila's story. I ended up speaking with her former employer, uh, and I told him that what he had done was illegal. There's no such thing as unpaid tryouts. And yeah, he actually felt really badly about it, and he took steps to reach out to Sheila, and he paid her. Um, I got the sense that if he had known that what he was doing was illegal, and I don't think he did know, I don't think he would have done it in the first place. But if you hadn't called him, chances are he probably wouldn't have paid her. Probably not. So, I mean, that seems to prove our point in a way. It kind of goes to show how, you know, in Sheila's case, at least, if there was proactive enforcement by the Ministry of Labor, it could have really made a difference. For sure. So to go back to our analogy about workers toiling below the ground floor, what we need is more security guards who will shine a light into the basement, bring workers back upstairs, and educate or maybe punish those who sent them there in the first place. The hope is that over time, fewer and fewer workers will be sent to the basement in the first place. We'd like to thank Goldblatt Partners LLP for their support of Objection. We'd also like to thank our producer, Ellie Gordon-Marshall, and the many people who've helped us along the way, including Annette Bloom, Bob Miller, Vanessa Payne, Dan Shepard, Kaylin Lord, Yasha Asik, and Katia Kane. Music for this episode by Lee Rosevier, Jazz Har, and Kevin McLeod. See show notes for full music credits.